0: Well, I'm rolling up my sleeves because we're about to get serious. If I had a watch, I'd take it off. You know that whole preacher thing, you take the watch off and you know you're going to be there a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the year 597 BCE and King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have ransacked Jerusalem. And as was their custom, after conquering a foreign land, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, others collected the nation's finest. They collected the artists, the philosophers, the doctors, the butchers, the bakers, and even the candlestick makers, and sent them to Babylon. And they left the remnants behind. In fact, you may recall that around this time, four young men are taken captive, Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad man Abednego, the Babylonians would take the cream de la cream, and because it would leave the conquered nation broken, without architects you can't rebuild, without craftsmen you can't remake. It keeps them where they're supposed to be, keeps them to know their place, and it keeps Babylon's foot on the neck of Israel. Well, while they're in exile, these 4,000 Israelites begin to wonder what is going on at home. What's news back at home? There's no Twitter, no Facebook, no instant messages. The doves aren't being sent, or pigeons, and it's Oklahoma, so they probably were shot when they were released the first go around. <laughs> they are living in a country that they don't like, learning a new language that they don't know. With people they don't like. And they're learning new customs with people they don't like. They're learning to like new food with people they don't like. And they live in neighborhoods with people they don't like. And I think this is when the privacy fence was invented. They are in a place that they don't like. And they want to know when do they get to go home. And there was a word that made its way back to them. A word from a prophet named Hananiah, who had broken a wooden yoke. And because he had broken that yoke, he says, the Lord says, you're only going to be there for two years. So they are thinking, it's 24 months. I can put up with these people for 24 months. We've all been there. We were all there this weekend. All I got to do is make it through Saturday. <laughs> right? Yeah, don't lie. not lie. It's church. We can make it. We can make it. 24 months, we can all make it. Well, that is until Jeremiah has something to say. In fact, in Jeremiah 28, he and Hananiah kind of come to uh, prophetic blows. Hananiah has broken this wooden yoke, and God says to Jeremiah, I'm going to replace it with an iron oak. And Jeremiah gets on to Hananiah, you've let, misled these people. It's not two years. It's 70 years all hope then seems to disappear jeremiah tells the people in exile don't listen to hananiah he doesn't know what he's going to talk about in fact god says he's going to die within the year so don't listen to him do not believe a word he says it's not two years it's 70 years So the hope of leaving Babylon in two years is taken away and displaced with the disturbing hope of 70 years. It's still hopeful, but it's 70 years. I told the youth to imagine if Canada came down and invaded us and took some of us back to Canada, which led to a very interesting discussion. Would they politely ask us to go with them? How would that work? To which then Carter would become the governor of Canada. And there are no governors. I told him as prime minister, and he said, well, I'm going to create a governorship. So everybody needs goals in life. (laughs) So imagine at your age, your young age, that you are displaced, and God says it's going to be 70 years before you step foot back in the United States of America. I would be 107 by that time. The odds are not in my favor. And so you can imagine, these Israelites hear this, and some of them are thinking, I'm never going home. I'm never going to return home. My kids may not see home. It's disturbing. This hope is taken away from them. And so they're wondering, what do they do now? Well, it's a good question. Unfortunately, God has provided some words of wisdom and answers. The first words God gives, the first word God gives to them is this. While you are in exile, live. Live. God does not wish for them to sit around and wait for the release. God doesn't want them to mope around. God wants them to live. God wants them to get married, make some babies, plant a garden, make some friends. And when their kids are of age, help them get married and encourage them to have some babies. Live life. God wants them to buy a home. You buy a home when you know you're going to be there for a while. So buy a home, settle down. In fact, plant you a garden and eat from that garden. God's saying you ain't going nowhere for a while. So live life, have a life. Because God understands that in this exilic time, people tend to get stuck in what good Dr. Seuss calls that waiting place place. You know, the place where people are always waiting, waiting for a train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow, like right around there. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday nights or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. God knows that when people enter in that waiting place, sometimes they don't leave. They choose not to move. And God knows that the people actually may choose to lay down and give up. God knows the people just might stop living and life will completely pass them by. So God is saying, the exile is going to last a long time, so get comfortable. Buy a king-size bed that that mattress that will remember how you sleep. Live life and be productive. Do not simply sit around. Be productive. Keep on doing what you've been doing. In the words of the prophet Matthew McConaughey, keep on living, L-I-V-I-N. All right, all right, all right. And I think it's important for us to pause here, especially as a church in this interim period, to be reminded that we are to be productive. This is not a time to float. This is not a time to just keep things as they are. It is a time to be productive. It's a time to continue doing life, to continue doing God's mission. God's mission never pauses, never ceases in an interim period, never ceases in the exile. God is giving us permission to, in the words of, of the great Dr. Howard John Wesley, Do you, baby. Do you. Go make disciples. Go feed the hungry. Go give a drink to the thirsty. Go visit the sick. Go to work. Go have fun. Go brush your teeth. Go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those in need of some good news. Go out and live a productive and fruitful life. The second thing God says to the exiled people is pray. Specifically, Pray for the welfare of their captors. I don't like that part. I'm going to pull a Thomas Jefferson and edit that out one day. But they are to pray for their persecutors. And I, I mean, I, don't, I struggle with this. Y'all may be better Christians than me. Your Bible may be bigger than mine, but I, I struggle here. I Man, I, I do pray for my persecutors because Jesus tells me to, but I don't pray for their welfare. I pray that they meet Jesus now, whether that's physically or spiritually, I leave that to god right like like we don't sit around and pray that our neighbor who won't return our lawnmower has a good marriage we we don't We don't think about praying in that way, but God is saying God is saying. Pray for your community. Pray that there's welfare, because how that city goes, so goes the Israelites. God understands the welfare of the people in exile is dependent on the welfare of the city they reside in. And so God gives them this this responsibility, this hard task of praying for people who have displaced them. If the Israelites actually really li- wish to live a good life, to succeed and thrive in this foreign land, then they need to pray on its behalf because the city's not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar ain't going to do it. He's more likely going to throw you into a fiery furnace than he is to, to pray for you. So you've got to pray, and you've got to pray hard. You've got to pray for the welfare of this city. And I think this word, as I said, is the hardest to hear. It's the hardest to take because prayer is a hard thing because we use prayer more as well, an opportunity to take to God all our demands and complaints, like our Christmas list. Instead of going to God, finding rest, releasing our burdens and seeking God's will, God's voice, God's desires, We seek our own, and I think it's hard to take because it requires patience and time. What's the old saying? Never pray to God for patience because God's not going to give you patience. He's going to give you times to be patient. So never pay for patience. Pray for patience. And praying's not easy. We live in a fast-paced environment, and we hear God say, live life, and we forget that one important piece of life is prayer. One of my favorite Denzel Washington quotes is that he tells young actors to start the day off and end the day the same way, on their knees. And the way to do it is to take their shoes off and put their shoes under their bed. Because when they wake up in the morning and they got to get their shoes, they got to get on their knees to get their shoes. And while you're on your knees, you might as well pray. And then, when you take off your shoes, you got to put them under your bed. And I know somebody's going to say, well, I kick them under the bed, but this doesn't work in this analogy. You get on your knees, and you slide them, and while you're there, you end the day with prayer. And so Jesus, our God, is saying, pray. And it's hard for us to take those moments to pray because we get caught up in life. And we keep moving and moving and moving And we forget that important piece of prayer. And I think, pause here for a moment as a church. Now would be a good time for us to stop and ask ourselves, have we actually prayed together? Have we... Gathered together and spent time in prayer together? Have we lifted up one another? Have we prayed for each other's welfare? Have we played, prayed for good marriages, good homes, good, good jobs, for, for things that we are going through? Have we taken the time to pray together? And one of the consistent practices Jesus taught and embodied is that of prayer he would consistently retreat to the mountains to pray. Uh, prayer would allow him to see as God sees, to interact with his enemies with compassion and empathy, to heal and to respond to the needs of the people. In fact, Henry Nouwen once said The only way to pray is to pray. And the way to pray well is to pray much. And prayer is not passive, it's not just us speaking, it is action because prayer without action as now one would say is just pointless piety and action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation and as the saying goes a church that prays together stays together The people who learn how to pray for the welfare of their enemies, their persecutors, learn to see them through the eyes of Christ. They learn to live in peace because they see their neighbor not as their enemy, but as a child of God. And that's hard to know. The same Christ who died for you and me also died for the neighbor who keeps throwing sticks over the fence. As they're not his sticks, they're your sticks and your tree. It's hard to see someone as Christ sees them. And I want to take a moment, and I'm totally overstepping my role as associate pastor. But I'm, I'm owning it, and I just want to say, and I want to challenge for us to pray for our church leadership. Pray for our transition team. Pray for our Duncans, deacons. Uh, and pray for Duncan, too, yes. I'd so love for you to pray for you. <laughs> pray for the board of elders pray for their welfare pray for that they have that their marriages are strengthened that they get times of rest that their jobs are going well because we all know that we all come to church carrying life and sometimes we dump it on each other and the last thing we need is to forget to pray for one another to pray for welfare, because if our elders are rested, if our elders are lifted up, if our deacons are lifted up, if Jeannie is lifted up, if I'm lifted up, if, if Tracy's lifted up, if, if everyone is lifted up, then each one of our welfare benefits. What's the saying? Happy wife, happy life. Yeah, right? Okay. A couple of women are like, Yeah, <laughs> nudging. <laughs> Oh, so we got to pray for one another. And if we pray for one another, if we bear one another's burdens, then together we will see each other through. And this leads to the final third piece of advice or word that God gives. And it's a promise. And the promise is simply this. God is still God. There's fear among the Israelites that the temple's destroyed, their access to God is gone. And God reminds them God is still their God with ten I statements. In verses 10 through 14, listen to this. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know, y'all know this one, right? For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God makes the promise that God will bring them back home. God makes the promise that while they are in exile, God knows the plans for them. And they are not plans for harm. They are plans for them to prosper. They are plans for them with a future, with hope. And God is saying, yes, I know it's going to be a long time. Seventy years is a really long time. But I know the plans I have for you. And these plans are not for your harm, but they are for your good. These are plans for a future with hope. God promises the people that God is still with them, and it's important for us to hear these words. Because if you look over in Psalm 137, you will hear these exiled people's words of lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there were there we hung up our harps, for there. Our captors ask us for songs and our tormentors for mirth, singing, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're hopeless. They're depressed, so God reminds them that God is still their God. They may be on foreign soil. They may be miles from home. The temple may be destroyed, but God is still their God, and God is God no matter what land they are in. It doesn't matter if they are in Jerusalem or in Babylon. God is with them. And God has the ability to increase their number, increase their well-being in the presence of their enemies. Just because they ain't in Jerusalem doesn't mean God can't do something great. Or that God won't do something great. For the Bible says, The Lord prepares a table before my enemies. The Lord anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. God is saying, I can bless you anywhere, anytime, because I am the same God today as I was yesterday. Ain't no box going to keep, you can't keep God in a corner. That's a Dirty Dancing reference, by the way. God reminds them, for I know the plans I have for you. And it serves as a beautiful, faithful reminder on this post-Thanksgiving Sunday, this Christ the King Sunday, that God is still God, and God is still with us. The beautiful thing about Christ the King Sunday is it's the last Sunday of the church calendar. Next week starts Advent. For most of y'all, that started on Friday, like at ungodly hours, <laughs> or Thursday evening. But Advent begins next Sunday. And it's four weeks of anticipation, four weeks of waiting, four weeks of hope, peace, joy, and love. Christ the King ends this regular church year and sends us right into this anticipation of the Christ child born in a manger to a young woman. This Christ child chased by a murderous king. A Christ child who's raised as a carpenter, baptized by a crazy man who loves locusts and honey. This Christ child who heals the sick, frees the demon-possessed, raises the dead, made the lame dance, the mute sing, and the deaf hear this Christ child who enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, betrayed by a disciple, judged by the empire, nailed to that empire's cross, and buried into a borrowed tomb where it is sealed and guarded. And that Christ child, with three, days later, three days later, rise from the dead and walk out of that tomb with all power and glory in his hands, defeating death and conquering the grave. Yes, Christ the King Sunday turns us to this hope that God is making all things new through this Christ child. So we pause here and we are reminded that though we are in a moment of exile, a moment of struggle, a moment of despair, a moment of pain, a moment when all seems lost, it is here we pause to be reminded that God is still God and God is is with us. Amen? You did not sound sure. Mm. Thank you, buddy. So remember in the exile to keep on living, pray for your enemies, and know that God is then, now, and forever. All God's people said, Amen. amen. There you go.